Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Welcome to episode 176 of the Highly Relevant Podcast, a show about how Latino pop culture is reshaping mainstream entertainment. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Sochil Gonzalez, the multi-talented Puerto Rican Mexican-American writer of the New York Times bestseller, Olga Dies Dreaming, and staff writer for The Atlantic Magazine. She's here to discuss with me her latest thought-provoking article, The New Case for Social Climbing, and its impact on people of color, particularly Latinos. In our interview, we explored the advantages and disadvantages of seeking higher social status, the right and wrong ways to do it, and why Latinos are more likely to succeed at it than most. And we get an update on her Hulu TV adaptation of Olga Dies Dreaming, starring Aubrey Plaza and Ramon Rodriguez. But before I talk to Sochil Gonzalez, it's time I give you my weekly recap of the top Latino pop culture headlines in a segment I like to call Jacked In. Let's begin with the top movie, TV, music news of the week. Gustavo Dudamel will be coming to the New York Philharmonic in 2026. The Latino winners of the English language Grammys were Bad Bunny for Best Musica Urbana Album, Ruben Blades and Boca Libre for Best Latin Pop Album, Rosalia for Best Latin Rock or Alternative Album, Natalia Laforcade for Best Regional Mexican Music Album, and Mark Anthony for Best Tropical Latin Album. Pedro Pascal's TV show The Last of Us has been renewed for season two on HBO. Wednesday star Jenna Ortega joins Adidas as global ambassador. Penelope Cruz will co-chair the Met Gala. And Eugenio Derbez's Radical wins the Sundance Film Festival Festival Favorite Award. And in tech and social media news, Apple may be working on a pricier iPhone Ultra. Twitter seeks to charge businesses $1,000 a month for brand verification. Texas is planning on banning TikTok statewide. Meta's Reality Labs lost $13.7 billion on VR and AR last year. Spotify now has over 200 million premium subscribers. Bing is going to compete with Google, and Bed Bath & Beyond is filing for bankruptcy. For a while now, I've been talking to friends, peers, and students about one of the sad lessons I've learned in life. Meritocracy is a myth. Meaning that the notion that people of color can simply just work hard and achieve guaranteed success, it's just not true. So when I came across an article from The Atlantic Magazine by Sochil Gonzalez, a Puerto Rican Mexican writer and author titled, 
the new case for social climbing, meritocracy is make-believe, it's all about who you know, I felt compelled to reach out to her and explore the topic even further. We begin our conversation with what her definition of social climbing is and why we're good at it. Social climbing really is about is network building, reciprocal network building and, and, and caring for people, right? Like communal care. I think that it gets this icky spin on it. And I, I wanted to sort of point out that we already know how to do it. We just think when you call it, you call it networking and like you put it on LinkedIn or you like go to like a speed networking thing or some like weird thing where you're wearing name tags. Suddenly we think we don't know how to engage in these spaces and actually <laughs> We're so good at it. We're so good at it. And we're so, I think that we are, you know, and this is obviously a generalization, but because so many of us come from larger extended families, you're also kind of good at tracking people's lives. Like, it's like, what's going on with blah, blah, blah's wife? Like, and it's like so-and-so's cousin's cousin's wife. Like, it's like, like you're like, she had had that little business. You know, like, it's like, we get, tend to like, remember people relationally, we remember things about them. And those are all of the same skills that that are actually how things work when you get into sort of more elite white spaces. And that there's a shame that's been put on it. Yes. And, yet, and I, I really wanted to sort of destigmatize it. And what I didn't get to talk about, I had actually written a whole section that, you know, for space didn't make it, but um, for people of color in particularly in the United States there is the way in which we have advanced and like a lot of the modeling came uh, like post slavery um into like sort of antebellum south but like a lot of, with social networks right like um secret societies fraternities greek fraternal organizations and then like sort of post civil rights latinos started to emulate like like organizations have been how we have helped one another advance and 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 succeed and create mm. i don't even want to say like in in the beginning it was safety right there were professional guilds and they were for safety from clansmen like literally and so because even when you go into the caribbean and you look at colonial times it was the masons the freemasons that were the foundational groups for rebellion um uh, throughout the caribbean in haiti and the dominican republic even in puerto rico mm. like like so really organization and and for you know fraternity and i say that in quotes because i mean that for sorority sororal you know just sort of this idea of adopted siblingships, adopted brotherhood of sorts, like has really been a source of power and social capital since um, throughout time and throughout times of adversity. What was the reason that inspired you to write about social climbing? Oh, I think it's really interesting. You know, I think um, I, I, I actually, it was personal and it was really less like a thing where I was like, this is outrageous as much as um, I had sort of a transformative year personally, um, and it was, you know, I had my first novel come out last January, and when um, the novel came out right before, my publisher had asked me to make a list of people who like, like me. It was, that was literally what it was called, make a list of people who like me, and I did, and it was like, you know, and, and obviously she didn't just mean like, necessarily like my bodeguero, like even though he does like me, but like, you know, like people who like me might be able to help me with the book, but that's sort of a funny side story. But I I did, and it was like a few hundred people long and it was not, um, 
it wasn't really stretches, you know, it was like people that like, maybe I'll have a text exchange with, you know, even it's just once a year just to say hello. And like, they would find it interesting. I, I wrote this novel, you know, like, and, um, and from that, it just sort of blossomed into so many opportunities and so many opportunities for the book in a mm. way that a lot of my other writer friends, you know, because I did my MFA at 42. And so most of my colleagues from my MFA were in their 20s. And um, and I'd had a whole professional life before I did that. So these were like sort of like I think of my life as like strata, you know, like earth science. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> these are my friends from this era of my life. These are the people that I met in this era of my life. And I'm pretty good at keeping in touch with people because I genuinely find people interesting, you know. And so I think that some of my younger writer friends were like a little bit like, how is this happening that so many people are talking about this book? And it's like, it is the fruits of like years and years and years of, of I'd say, I don't even like to call it labor because it's not laborious necessarily if you're doing it right. But like the way that I came to even be on the radar of the Atlantic was because one of the people on that list like is married to someone at the Atlantic and mm. have passed the book on after they read it. And then they read my book and were like, oh, this is like political, but funny and does all these things. And like, you should, uh, you know, like you should think about a newsletter. And so like, this is how this whole thing even came about. So concurrent with this, I was elected a trustee at my alma mater, which is like- I, I, At Brown trustee, University. Yeah. And so, and I don't actually talk about this very much because- um I, I don't know, it's a complicated topic, but in the context of this, especially given the context of your podcast, I did want to talk about it because it made me remember a lot, like, you know, just the memories of going back and suddenly you remembered feeling so much like an outsider. And now I'm like the ultimate insider, right, in this room. And it all runs the same way. Like I, a guy called me and was like, you know, my daughter, a very powerful, wealthy person, like what, you know, like exactly on the top of the chart, like a powerful, wealthy woman. My daughter's really interested in writing. Would you, do you think you could have some time to just talk to her for 15 minutes on a Zoom? You know, like I, so suddenly wow. you realize like, oh, and well, of course we're colleagues in this volunteer organization, you know, like, like, why would I not say yes? Like, and I think one of the things that as you have the occasions to have some power and a platform, I think the important thing to do with it is to, when you can, use it to sort of educate, share, illuminate, and particularly dissect power, right? Because it comes across as this amorphous sort of intimidating thing. And in actuality, I think we all are closer to understanding it than we sometimes realize. So as a Latina, because as I understand it, you're Puerto Rican and Mexican, right? Yeah. How important is social climbing within the Latino community in modern times? And what do you do when there's a previous generation that's telling you not to do it? How did you wrestle with that culturally? So that's really interesting. On the one hand, I want to acknowledge I'm a very, I think this is just a podcast so people can't see me, but you Google me, I'm a very Correct. white, passable Latina. So that's a giant privilege. On the other side, we are very invisible. And the discomfort sometimes of climbing is that when you're in rooms, people tell you what they really think. <laughs> and like, wow. and so that's, that's challenging. And sometimes the discomfort of that um, and how do you handle that? And how do you, do you politely push back? Do you like, how do you deal with that can make it so uncomfortable that you don't want to be in the room sometimes. I think that the, an older generation, I will just say this, having had some experience, particularly in the writing space, like there was a little bit of a notion 
in an older generation that like we're we should be more polite and grateful about um being invited into these rooms and and maybe a little bit more okay with performing you know what i mean like um because you were brought like i'll even say this like i remember when i was going to college my own grandfather who like you know worked for the mta like it wasn't like he was like he was very uncomfortable when we come to college but he was like like never he was like i said people are telling me in high school that i got into brown because i'm latina blah, blah, blah. and he was like well then you be as latina as you can be like you let them know that you're here like and i was like what does that mean like you're like i got that one and i'm always like that was really cool i feel really proud i think that what i decided actually as i was getting ready for the book to come out in the world and i was getting some advice from some older latinas in the writing space i i and actually another artist friend a visual artist friend of mine Teresita fernandez she said to me one day, she was like, never let anybody define your Latinidad. Mm. She's like, and that's what our jobs, our generation's job is. I feel I'm seeing that more, that there is like an unwillingness to conform to one version or to present like just one narrative around Latinidad. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other thing is that because we're easily forgotten, I do, I, I do sort of feel it's important for me to assert the uniqueness of our community's needs and perspectives. So I guess I would probably say I finesse it. It's slippery. It's not one thing. It's not unilateral. I think you have to be unapologetic. I do feel a responsibility to speak for experiences other than my own, even like in the sense that one of the things that doesn't serve us and why representation on television and all these other things are so important and why I write about all of that so much is because the less that we have, the more easy it is to flatten and narrow us. Right. And the more easy it is to then silence us when we are in sort of mixed groups and, and going into like, you know, kind of like what I would call like social climb situations, like, you know, uh, like um, because it's like, oh, you know, like somebody will make a blanket like Latino statement or just even the notion, you know, my family has been because of my background my family has been kind of citizens of America for so right. long. Like, <laughs> they are American, you know, from ancestry. <laughs> you know, the one thing that I do think that the article doesn't talk about that is important in this kind of context is how do you not let ignorance slide with and like sort of illuminate things for people without a stifling a conversation, you know what I mean? Like, and so I do think that if anything, that's probably one of the things that I've just gotten a little bit better at um, because, you know, sometimes, sometimes you're hit with pure racism and sometimes you're just literally hit with like, oh, you don't realize that not everybody is Mexican, like, right? Like, like you're like a Hollywood executive that's lived in LA their entire life. And it just doesn't even occur to you that this isn't everybody's experience. Like, you know, like it's, it's so, I think that sometimes we have to like parse out a little bit more, but I do think it's important to do because it's that idea that it's one flat thing that is part of what, as I always say, that allows us to become a caricature. And that's what how people get away with things like throwing a hundred migrants on a plane and sending them to, you know, Martha's Vineyard. As I was thinking and I was reading your article and I was thinking about me being a Latino myself within a Latino community, how much has Spanish language media entertainment like novellas? Yeah. The Cinderella novellas, the rags to riches story, the social yeah. climber. 
Yeah, the yeah. pobrecita de Mexico que no tiene nada and yeah. all of a sudden marries the billionaire corporate, you know, guy and they live <laughs> happily forever after. And you're a little girl watching, you know, uh, Talia, you know, as uh, <laughs> and, and, and you, you, you just want to be like her and follow her path. How much do you think a Spanish language media entertainment has influenced social climbing? almost kind of like baked into the Latino experience in that and economics, the fact that we don't make as much money. So we're almost forced to be social climbers. Yeah. I mean, I think that's interesting. One of the, I talk about in the article, I talk about Mal Flanders. Um, I, like I, I sort of go through like, when did the stigma kind of begin? And it's, it basically is as old as class class itself. Like to the terms of like the media and the representation is, I think that it's an easy character to villainize on the outside. And it, but it does though, is it does present it as an option. We tend to come from very machismo cultures, right? So the idea is that a man is going to always have more than you. And mm -hmm. that that is kind of on the table of like, let's say career viability, right? Like marrying well is, is kind of, like when feminism is repressed to a certain extent, marrying well was a career option pre-Roe, right? Like that was yeah. still a career option pre-Roe, like in every country, right? Like, but in America in particular. So I think that if we see that it's a, it's more of a, the other side of kind of like being still in machismo dominated cultures. But I think what I say about Mal Flanders that I would say is probably true of a lot of Latina women. It's like, you're looking for a way to survive. And when your options right. are so limited, like, you know, this comes across as like uh, providing is an attribute, right? Like, and, you know, of course, what that comes with doesn't always cut, like it usually doesn't work out like the novella, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It doesn't work out like the novella, but I think again, there's a like a website called like Seeking Arrangement, I think, and it's all for young women. It's a, a you know a white, predominantly white American website. It's all young women looking for that are sugar babies looking for sugar daddies. So I think that we tend to wear the stigma of these things, and maybe it's because we show these stories like a little mm. bit more often, like more often in our media, and like you know we have these great memes and these great <laughs> villains, you know, like like they're just so compelling that I think they, they tend to stick and feel stickier. Um, right. You know, that that to me is probably what the answer is. Like we are undercompensated across the board, across gender dynamics. And I think that in some cases that is where we like, that's where climbing can help us. Right. Like friendships in the workplace, which is something that I talk about, I think is one of these or professional really like professional networks, like professional associations, like both within our own communities and without, because if it's as important to be, let's say you're a, you know, you're a journalist, it's as important to be part of like a Latino journalist association as it is to be part of a journalist association at large. So you can understand what are the white men making? That's right. Like, what are, like, like what are, so I say about how your social network is valuable by breadth and depth. And I think, I, I think that that's one of those great examples because the way that we close the age, the, the wage gap is through knowledge and we only can accumulate knowledge through, we can't rely on companies and systems, to be honest. Like we sort of need 
to talk to people. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that it's only through familiarity that these intimate things about work and life really come to light. And so I think a lot of the time, to go back to what you said before about invisibility, a lot of the way in which we the wage gaps continues to exist is because we sort of are the only somebody in an office, right? The only somebody in a thing. And we are siphoned off from that information pool and that that network. So I, I think that's the other reason why um, this kind of social capital, it's not just for opportunities, it's also for information so that we can combat on an individual basis, like these kind of microaggressions of discrimination, like, like wage di- differentials and things like that. For those right now that are listening to the podcast and, and, and they're saying, you know what, Sochil makes a really good point. Maybe I should just start social climbing, but I still have that stigma, you know, of my parents telling me not to do this. You say that there is a right way to do this. Yeah. And yeah. so can you share for those that are still sort of whether I should do this or not, how, what advice do you have for them of the right way of social climbing? Yeah. So I think that too often it becomes, I would like to, I'm just going to pretend that I'm a lawyer for a second. Okay. <laughs> I'm a lawyer at blank company and I wish I could be the general counsel of like a tech company, right? Just by way of example, too often we think, let me look up general counsels of companies that I like and see if I can make coffee with them and then like expect something to come from that that's going to ameliorate my career. <laughs> like instead, like uh, the better way to do it is if you are a lawyer and there's you have a boss or like a boss's boss and you know you find find them smart or funny in meetings or like you know they make good comments or even a colleague that's a little more seasoned than you and you're like they have a good sense of humor i kind of laugh or like on the slack they're very funny like that's the person that you should talk to and learn from like that it doesn't have to be the person in exactly the role but that's like the person that you should say like oh can we get coffee or like at the happy hour you're like try to hang out with and then you find out things about them like you're like oh like you know where'd you go to law school i'm literally just using this as an example because i know a lot of lawyers like oh you're married like how old's your kid like you know like oh blah 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 and then you're just like, oh, how's this going with your family? Like, like just actually care about people <laughs> that have a little bit more experience than you. And I think in time, like if you th- like that, what that leads to is these conversations where it's like, oh, eventually I'd like to become a general counsel. And like, that's when you start to notice people. It's because people feel that you're a thoughtful person, an interesting person. Like, I hope that most people are interested. I think most Latinos are interested in people, even just to be nosy. <laughs> Like, so I don't think it's that much hard work for us to feign some of this stuff, but like, it's, it's really, um, I think it's not just expecting something to fabricate out of thin air. It's to see the threads that exist that you can turn and sew into a relationship. And it's, it's the network of relationships that is what is going to help you move forward. It's not a magical connection with somebody like, that's like, you know, seven steps ahead of you in your career, that's going to somehow bestow upon you the, you know, the golden goose. Like, I don't think that that, I think too often the misconception is if I meet the right person, that's going to unlock the key and then everything's going to come my way. And it's not really about that. It is much more about like, I remember when I was trying to pivot out of, I was a wedding planner for years before I did all of this. And I was really like, I don't really know what to do. And I just called 
like 10 or 15 women I knew that had interesting careers and was just like, how'd you do this? How'd you ever change? What, what was the hardest part? Just for advice. And by the way, those women ended up all being on my 15 people of the 200 people that like me list and all helped me push forward my writing career. So like, I, I, I think that we, it's when you think about social climbing, it's not going to be something that has rewards at the end of a week. Like it doesn't pay dividends mm, right away. So it's delayed gratification. It's yeah. long-term It's building. like buying a house, right? It's like buying, a, like, it's like buying a house. Like, you know, it's like going to give you a place to live in. It's going to make your night, life a little bit better. Like, you know, get a good mortgage rate. Hopefully <laughs> you might be able to refi, but when you're really going to appreciate it is like 20 years from now, 10, 20, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes sooner. But like, it's not the kind of thing where it's like, I'm going to go out this week and network. And by the end of it, I'm going to have new opportunities. <laughs> like it's, it just doesn't quite work that way. So what you're saying is, listen, this idea, I know you've probably people have heard it, that relationships are transactional. Yes, there is always a reward that comes out of relationships. But remember, the human part is what you're saying. It's like, don't just treat them as two-dimensional figures, you know, they're, they're human beings that want to be heard, that want to be listened to. And so what you're saying that there's an investment that needs to be done. Totally. It has to be yeah. genuine, the like, because then somewhere down the line, that becomes social capital that then could okay. help you out because you were a really genuine person, a real, a very real person. Yeah. And I give an example, I, I, I just by way of an example, I give an example about needing to get a job and co after college, right? Like, and, um, and how I ran for class president because my friend who is an athlete was like, oh, you're going to get all the best job offers. And like, and that did not happen. But what happened was because I was class, pre I was class president. People knew that I had this, there was a professor, I had a little job in a gallery He'd stop in. I had taken a class. I'd taken a couple classes with him. He would chat, chit chat. I'd tell him what I want to do. He'd heard I was class president, which gives him the sense, like, I must be somewhat responsible and, like, you know, socially okay, like, if I manage to do this thing. So it says something about you. And then he'd had personal experience with me. And he's like, oh, you want to do this? I can help you make that happen. Like, so I think that um, what, we, you know, I think in the age of social media, particularly just for young, you know, younger listeners of yours, like it used to be, how did you hear about something? Oh, word of mouth. What's the great club? Word of mouth. Like now it's like everything's on Instagram, but like it used to be literally like you'd be out and someone's like, oh, we went to tunnel. We were at Lotus, Lotus on Sundays. Like it was like amazing. And you're like, oh really? Oh, this DJ. And then finally, eventually you'd be like, that DJ was the DJ you'd follow because you kept hearing this person's name. And I think even that, like, it's like, like, for instance, I talked to my colleagues, I agreed to talk to my colleague's daughter. It's not that that, that particular colleague might ever do something, but one day you might be like, you know, who's such a nice person. She was so sweet. She took time to talk to my daughter because, blah, blah, blah. and this is like, helps you, your rep, like people talk, you know, like people talk. And, and I think that sometimes we forget that. And like, if you don't give people a chance to know you, and you literally don't um, give people a chance to see the full package. That's the other beauty of kind of building a, a network, climbing, if you want to call it that. It's also this chance to like 
let people see who it is that you really are. Um, and that grows a reputation. I think, you know, so many of us sort of work more and more in niche fields, you know, like as a writer in like in tech, in, in entertainment, you know, whatever mm. it might be, these worlds get increasingly small. And like, you know, the whole thing of an ascent is like, it doesn't get bigger at the top, it gets smaller. So the more people that you know, it's like your reputation sort of gets to follow you. So there's a quote from the magazine where you say, in elite circles, not all opportunities were advertised. There were rooms that the rest of us didn't know existed. And those rooms came with possibilities never advertised. And this resonated so much with me because I think that a lot of Latinos, and I'm speaking just from my own experiences, they associate social climbing with white validation. Yeah, that's right. They do not associate social climbing within the Latino community because at the end of the day, that's still a small ceiling. And yeah. they know that there's a bigger ceiling where you can get more money, more visibility yeah. if you're a musician, if you're anything. Yeah. So explain to me the advice that you offer about these elite circles. How does one, if you're a Latino and you look like a Latino, yeah. How do you build a rapport? How do you build a relationship? How do you build social capital with, I guess, white people? So I'm going to speak in like totally practical matters. And like, and obviously like it's a, it's a strange thing because it it's a, a little bit, it's a little bit meritocracy. It's a little bit not, but I do think that college, like, you know, if, if, if you've gone to a college or you're a professional and you've got like, you know, and I don't mean just like a professional that's gone to like an elite school. Like, I mean, like, like my cousins owned an exterminating business. There's like an, a rank and file and exterminating, like, you know, like it's like, 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 like in any industry, there's a hierarchy. Right. But there's usually, I, I go back to kind of this idea of like associations, like uh, to me, like, I'm going to speak slightly in slightly elitist terms, but like, to somebody that's just for because it's just such an easy structure to discuss like if you've gone to a four-year college they have an alumni association like and that is such a great way to build like start to get to know people and engaging in those things is a great way to like meet people outside of your immediate social circle demographic you have this thing in common even though you are Latino and you have your own culture and your own identity and your own community that, you know, that you may or may live amongst, but like, it's, it's a way to branch out. And I think it's a safe, a quote unquote safe space, right? Like in the sense that it's, and I think, you know, the more and more that these things exist, they tend to have like, you know, even more niche groups within that. Like, um, and then I would say, like, what is your workplace? Like, how does your work, how can your workplace, like that's an integrated workplace, how can you leverage that there? Like, I, I do think that there are, um, you know, there's even, there are still like, you know, I, I have some acquaintances that are in like, you know, the the Rotary Society, like they live in the suburbs and stuff. That is, these are ways, but also I don't want to diminish Latino networks. You know, Latino networks can be very powerful and there are professional Latino networks. There's voter engagement networks. There's like, I did, um, when I was working on this piece and it didn't end up making it in, I I was reading about a study about social mobility amongst undocumented immigrants in LA, that kids that had been working for the Dreamers Act. 
and how that group that was completely, you know, kind of fledgling, but it was all volunteering around activism, they then helped find each other professional opportunities and work opportunities and apartments and like how they had like increased, like statistically increased social mobility through that network. So I'd say like, yes, in white spaces, like the best ways to do it are usually through integrated institutions that you might like your workplace or an alma mater. But I would also say not to discount the power of social capital building within the Latino community also at large. Absolutely. And I think that those are like stages, right? So if you're an immigrant, then the Latino institutions, those are the ones that you strive for. But then what happens like for a guy like me, right? Where uh, I was born in Queens uh, and you know, you're in Brooklyn. So we're cousins. Uh, But I used to work at Univision 41 here in New York city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so what was funny is there comes a moment where you yes. you're not you're not the master of anything. You're just trying to have someone, you know, give you a job. Yeah. And the ones that gave me a job were the Hispanic media companies yeah, at first. Right. Yep. After 8 years they know you're really American Latino, not That's Latino right. Latino. <laughs> and they it. tell you the yeah. the Spanish like they like, "Oye, papi, esto ya está listo para ti." You know, <laughs> <laughs> Tú tienes que ir para lo, los gringos ahora. And yeah. they let you know. They're, they're almost like yeah. your life social cue marker that lets yeah. you know it's time to move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do yeah. social climbs somewhere else because you can represent us That's in right. those spaces. And then they look at you as sort of like an ambassador for them. That's right. No, 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 totally. But like, see, and I want to say like, you know, there's two sides to that. Like one is like, I think that's amazing. And on the other side, it's like, you know, you like, I think it's amazing that they encourage you on, right? Like encourage you to bigger, just slightly broader seas, right? Like where there's new and better opportunities. And on the other side, like if I were to just be gaming it out, like literally I, I'm kind of good at this. Like I'm sadly good at this, but like I would, <laughs> I would also probably have joined like the National and Black and Latino Journalists Association and gone to that conference and see who do I go with? Who do I gel with that's not just in Latino media, that's in other media? And like, like, so I I think the way that I look at it, like, and I'm pretty weirdly strategic about stuff like this, but everything at the end of the day is kind of wedding planning. Like it's like, like I I, I sort of look at it and I'm like, well, I, how can I vine jump that to people that have slightly broader networks than me and see who I meet? Because sometimes it's literally just like, what's it like working at the Good and Go station? Like you don't need anything, but just information, right? Like, it's like, you're just a curious. And I think that that's where just to get back to that other thing, to put a really fine point on it. I think too often we Latinos in particular, like people of color in particular, like think social climbing is calling somebody up and then asking for something at the end. And sometimes all you're asking for is information. Like, it's just like, I'm really curious. I've been working at Univision for like six years. What's it like working at a gringo station? You know, here are the cool things about it. Here's the things I don't like. I don't even know what it's like on the other side. Tell me. I'm so curious. Like, and then that's a whole conversation. And they're like, that's really fascinating. You know, X, Y, and Z happens where I'm at. And then that person, you just don't know, like, might like it might not even be with them. It's just like, oh, you know what? My buddy just emailed me. There's an opportunity opening up at blah, 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 blah. You should apply for it. And it's just having ears in another world that's slightly different than your world to like 
open. It's like people that help crack open your vision of what it could be, you know? Uh, you were speaking a little while ago about you being a wedding planner, and I wanted to kind of move on and, and and talk about your book, Olga Dies Dreaming. I've been hearing about the book for almost a year since it came out. I wanted to talk about two things. One, what the book is about. Um, why should people read it? And then I wanted to talk about the uh, the, the television adaptation on Hulu. Because uh, I and I wanted to talk a little bit about the process of book to TV, but what is Olga dies dreaming about, and how does the Latino community see themselves in that book? It came out January fourth, and it usually, if you don't hit as a brand new author, it's my first book. If you don't hit the first week in the Times list, you're not going to make it. Mm. And I bizarre occurrence that where I hit the Times week the second week it came out, it was out, and it's one thousand percent the Latino community that did this because everybody. Wow. That's great. Everybody was talking about it and really put it over the top because what is, um, what I would say is like unique about it. And what I've heard a lot from a lot of readers, Latino readers in particular, it tells the story of, um, a brother and a sister, Olga and her brother Prieto, um, her older brother Prieto. Um, and we meet them in middle age and he is a congressman. He went to he went to SUNY. He was in a Latino Greek. She's and she went to a, an an Ivy, an unnamed Ivy, and um, comes back and stumbles into this wedding planning career. But she's very very good at it. She's very <laughs> successful. Works for all of Manhattan's like wealthiest families, and she you know she's kind of disaffected. And we meet them in middle age, and we come to discover that they both sort of have buried a lot of family trauma. Their mother. Their parents were former young lords. Their father had died of a drug-related incident, and their mother had left them to be raised with a grandmother and sort of went off to pursue radical politics. We come to find out in Puerto Rico um, for liberation causes. But what it, it it is is it's really a story of two people, this this sibling, these siblings, finding self-love on their own terms and figuring out how to wrestle being successful you know, they have a lot of adversity, but they've had a lot of success. And I think what a lot of readers really appreciated was this idea of like resilience and getting to see not just a story, like a story of people with some not back on their heels, but overcoming it, who have overcome adversity and coming to kind of emotional peace with like, how are you successful by American standards and still successful in your heart and successful in the eyes of your family and a good family member and a person that feels self-love and love for others. So um, it's kind of a middle-aged coming of age story. And I think what like a lot of Latinos and particularly Latinas like loved was this um, sense of like, what does it mean when you're trying to be successful kind of by white standards and by white, white capitalistic standards and it's kind of eating you apart. And how do you self-create like your own sense of, of values and worth? You know, I mean, and it's very funny. It's a political satire. There's a lot of revolutionary politics in it involving colonialism and gentrification in Puerto Rico and there's political aspects of it. But it's 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 really a bit of a satire. And there's a love story that always helps. So it's really I wanted to do create a portrait of a Latino woman is in the fiber of America today. And what is it like to feel compromised and invisible and sometimes like made to be performative um, and also have the strength that we have. And um, yeah, it's been wonderful to see it embraced the way that it's been embraced. The the ultimate social climbers, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's 
definitely a social climber too, by the way. She's also a social climber. So I wanted to talk about the 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 creative process here and the business process. Yeah, of, yeah. From book to television, because there's a lot of Latino writers today whose dream uh, is to see their book being adapted to either television or film. So in your case, how easy was this? Was this serendipitous? I mean, I don't know. It's really hard to say, but like, I don't even know if it's going to happen. Like we shot a $13 million pilot starring Aubrey Plaza, Ramon Rodriguez, Jesse Williams, Laz Alonzo, I could keep going, Jessica Bimentel, like, I mean, I could keep going on with names. Literally spent uh, three months working on this pilot and they didn't pick it up. So I don't know if it'll ever see the light of day. You're kidding me. No, no. I mean, and it's amazing. It's amazing. It's I mean, am Aubrey Plaza, because that's the other thing I was going to tell you. Uh, you. So you look like you shot it, right? I shot it. No, I shot okay. it. Okay. What was that experience like for you? Okay, so you have your first book, and now all of a sudden you are writer, creator, executive yeah. producer uh, yeah. of your first pilot on a television show, and you're Hispa a Hispanic woman at that. Well, and I'll see, there were only two producers on the show. There were the, the, Here are some of the wonderful things about it. There were only two producers on the show. It was me and Alfonso Gomez de Rajon, uh, executive producers. Aubrey Plaza had been producers on it. So um, mm. every single producer on it outside of the Hulu 20th um, system was Latino. So it was, you know, absolutely like only Latino hands touch this creative process. And I, I, you know, I think because I had run a very high end luxury event planning company, I was doing like million dollar weddings, you know, like it was like, like they weren't like, they were not my cousin's weddings. That's the best way to put it. <laughs> they were not my cousin's weddings. Um, I was really used to working under pressure. And as I would say every day that I went on set, no one's going to personally sue me today. So I feel okay. <laughs> like, I just look like, you know, I was kind of like, this is 20th century's money. So I'm feeling all right. Like, I, I mean, I, the process was, I don't want to lie and say that it wasn't overwhelming. I think anytime you're doing something for the first time, it's there's a learning curve. There's a learning curve. You know, I was effectively the showrunner on that, yeah. on that set. And, um, and it was a little weird. Like I'm like, I'm more of a behind the scenes person. And, you know, you're working on it with the, a young crew and like, you're the most important person and they all want to get FaceTime with you. And that was a little bit weird. Like I was like, nah, I was like, just let me write my scripts. Like, you know, <laughs> so, um, I think, you know, it was, and it was amazing. This was my first script that I ever wrote really. And it got greenlit to, to pilot at the very least. Like, so that was amazing. And how different was your, the writing in your book versus the television pilot you know it's so funny originally i would say like not much like like funny little things like in the book people that have read it it's not much of a spoiler she has a bit of a, a meltdown on tv and so what we started the series out with was her auditioning for this job she has like a morning show kind of gig and so we have her auditioning for it and that in the book happens in a flashback right and so like so we just made that present but but then funny weird stuff like in the book Je the Jesse Williams character kind of picks her up in a bar. And in reality, Jesse Williams is so hot, even with us like giving him a beard and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, we were, like this, like, like it felt too aggressive to have him pick her, her up. So we sort of flipped it. Like, like, but like, like I, I was like, I think that Aubrey needs to pick Jesse up. Like this just doesn't feel quite right. Like, so, um, you know, I hope, 
I'm hoping that we can revisit it as a limited series. It's fabulous. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And you got Aubrey Plaza and Ramon Rodriguez as your leads. Yeah. I mean, I after the White Lotus uh, show came out and she became she she looks like she's like a-list now at least that's how it feels like yeah yeah i thought this was a guarantee I mean, for I'm you that we might have a chance to revisit it as a limited series the one thing that was happening was it was getting um it's very different i'm not gonna lie to you it's very different than any other like latino show that has been on tv like um it's it's shot like a gorgeous film. Alfonso is like a genius and just it doesn't perform Latinoness at all. You know what I mean? Like mm. <laughs> and so I think a challenge for Latino creators is um, you know, executives, you're dealing with an industry where I think there's five percent, there's more executives of color in oil and gas than there are in entertainment. Wow. And that is like the least represented is Latino executives, right? And so like, you know, you would do a Zoom with like 40 white, really awesomely well-intentioned white people. And I think um, in some funny ways, it's almost like the way I would say that this show is like the Sopranos of like Latino shows. Like, you know, like it's like, it's a little out there. And so I I think what's challenging is um, I know that this would be a hit with our my community and with like the, like, I, it's just an urban community at large to use old marketing terms, like, cause it's just got water coolery stuff. But, you know, I don't know that that aesthetic is understood by um, like, you know, sort of all mainstream executives. So I'm hoping that, um, I'm hoping that we'll have another bite at the apple. You know, I, I, Aubrey's amazing in it. I hope the world, the world should see her in this role she's so unbelievable and i think you know i think as an as like a seven or eight part limited series instead of an ongoing thing it, i think it would actually work better so i'm not giving up i mean i have management now i'm i, I just pitched like three more tv shows like i'm I, i'm sort of i have so many freaking jobs right now like <laughs> congratulations on all of them so seriously this is my baby so i'm really 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 hoping that um that we get that the world gets to see this amazing cast Just before I wrap up here, here are three Latin tracks you might want to add to your playlist this weekend. Lo que éramos antes ya no está. Lo mejor de tu hijo aquí está. Solo quédate y dime que todo será diferente. Diferente. Steve Aoki featuring CNCO. Por si volvemos, Carol G en Romeo Santos. Jesse Reyes. 
And that's it for episode 176 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I'd like to thank Sochin Gonzalez for joining me on the show. And if you like this episode, please share with your friends and have them subscribe and leave a review. Your help is valuable in helping us reach more listeners. If you'd like to get in touch with me, reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube. I'm Jack Rico. See you next week on another episode of Highly Relevant. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dentalone-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM.